Hello, and welcome to the Future Christian Podcast, your source for insights and ideas into what it means to live as a follower of Jesus in the 21st century. At the Future Christian Podcast, we talk to pastors, authors, and other faith leaders for helpful advice and practical wisdom to help you and your community of faith walk boldly into the future. Here's your host, Lauren Richmond Jr. Welcome to the Future Christian Podcast. My name is Lauren Richmond Jr., and today I'm welcoming Dr. Ryan Birch to the show. Ryan is Assistant Professor of Political Science at Eastern Illinois University. He is the co-founder of and frequent contributor to Religion and Public, a forum for scholars of religion and politics to make their work accessible to a general audience. He has been interviewed by several national media sources for his religion his research on religion in America, including the New York Times, Washington Post, The Economist, and Full Frontal with Samantha B. All right, share if you would about your faith journey. Yeah, I, I grew up in a, a small town in, in southern Illinois called Salem, about 8,000 people, uh, and I was one of those cradle Baptists. Uh, I went to, I can't remember a time that I was not intimately involved in the church. My mom was Sunday school teacher, my, my dad drove the church bus, my grandma was the financial secretary, and my Grandfather was the usher, and so anytime the church doors were open, uh, we were there. Uh, sometimes when they weren't open, we were there. I feel like we were there all the time, um, probably two, three, four times a week when I was younger. And then when I was in youth group, I was one of those kids who was always at the church. I had a pretty good relationship with our youth pastor, and he was just always just kind of had me around to help him out do stuff, paint, and work on programs and and plan stuff. And you know, he kind of always saw me as a leader, even you know, at 14, 15, 16 years old, and so. Um, I was just intimately involved in church, you know, my entire really growing up and my, through my entire teenage years. And it was the 1990s too, by the way, which is like a very important part of this whole story because the 1990s are a very odd moment in evangelical culture. Yeah. Um, you know, the religious right and abortion and gay marriage, all that stuff was really, really hitting its peak. Uh, evangelicalism hit its peak in America, like 1993. So I was kind of riding the wave of, of what that was. And our church was, you know, very large at the time. We had over 300 people, tons of facilities and people and programs and everything else. And um I didn't I didn't get baptized until I was 15 years old, which in in my in my world was like really, really late. Um, a lot of my friends, seven, eight, nine, ten years old, they got baptized. I was always the holdout. Like I was the black sheep. And I remember my parents just being so worried that I was going to get hit by a bus and die and go to hell. And um, you know, they I think the more they pushed me into it, the more it pushed me away from it, if that makes right. any sense. Right. And and so like the harder they push, the more I I'm a guy who tells me if you can't do something I should do something, then I don't do it. Um and so I didn't really accept Christ as much as just give up the fight against um getting baptized. I was never a, a guy who had this like sort of uh epiphany where I was like, I believe now, this is cool. Like I'm I'm down with this. It was more of I believe this enough to get baptized and continue to try to believe more as I as I grew up. So I got baptized at 15, uh, and then I went away to a Christian college that was not evangelical. I went to a free Methodist school that was definitely um, more moderate in its theological approach to things. Mm-hmm. And so um, we, I, I learned that Christianity was bigger than what I thought it was. Yeah, you know, and there's there's more ideas out there about you know all kinds of issues, the Bible, uh, social issues, all kinds of stuff that I wasn't aware of. And then at 20. Um, through a bunch of happenstance, I got a job, a three-month internship as the uh, youth pastor, uh, youth director, I don't know what they called it at the time, of a little church about 25 miles from where I grew up, which is a Baptist church, First Baptist Church of Centralia. What I didn't know at the time was it was an American Baptist church. Mm. And American mm-hmm. Baptists are the mainline flavor of Baptists in America. They're the more moderate. We have female pastors. Some churches are open and affirming. 
And then, you know, once you kind of get enmeshed in a network like that, it's just easier to stay in a network like that. And right. I, I, I've just always kind of stuck in that network because they've always really needed me to pastor. And um, it's really easy to find a church in ABC because they have they have a, a whole structure in place to like help pastors find churches. Well, the SBC is a lot more disparate with stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I've been pastoring in the American Baptist Church now for 20 years. I've been at my current church for it'll be 16 years next month. I'll be the long, I'm the longest serving pastor in the history of the church. Um, and, um, our church has about 10 or 12 people on a good Sunday now. Wow. Well, thanks for sharing that. Um, what are some spiritual practices? I don't know. You have quite a, a, you know, similar faith background to me. So this question always means different to different people. What's something that's a spiritual practice, spiritual discipline that's meaningful to you now? One thing I picked up in college, um, which is which is why I'm so thankful for doing this. I picked up in college uh, a lot of litur- liturgical um, religious practice, you know, things like the lectionary and the daily office. Um, I used to say the daily office, you know, two or three times a day, every single day, morning, sometimes afternoon, and then evening. You know, the prayers that are involved with that, the general Thanksgiving, the Apostles' Creed, um, the general confession, and I, I, I wish I would do that more. I'm not nearly as disciplined as I, I wish I was, but I still pick up the Book of Common Prayer even now when I don't know what to say. Like if I go as part of a pastoral role, I have to go to like bedsides, people with their last hours, last days, yeah, yeah. births of children, you know, all kinds of tragedies and monumental moments of people's lives. I'm there, you know, kind of watching along, and I don't know what to say in half those moments. So what do I yeah. do is I turn the, open the Book of Common Prayer, and there's a prayer for the birth of a child. And there's a prayer for ministration at the time of death. And those prayers to me actually mean a lot more because they stood the test of time. They've been said by millions of people and they seem just so real and so spiritual and so, you know, imbibed with this sense of the divine that whatever I pray on my own can never come close to how beautiful those are. So that's something I've really kind of leaned on more is rote prayers. I was always taught rote prayers are bad. right? And I'm a big believer that however you want to communicate with God, he's cool with. And I think in rote prayers, you can find a lot of um, structure that, that a lot of times we need. And sometimes they say things that we're unable to express. And I think that's really a beautiful thing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was working previously as a hospital chaplain, and I was always quite envious of the Catholic priests who'd come in and just have their book of prayers. And that's what they do. And can like feel like they said the right thing, and then they could be kind of content knowing that they, they said those words and they're good. It is nice because you're like, listen, I mean, this is what you say, and this is what you do in this situation. Right. And and honestly, in those situations, the best thing you can do, and you probably know this well, Lauren, the best thing you can do is just be present with people, you know, just, just grieve with them. You don't have to have the right thing to say. Right. You don't have to have some sort of right. profound, you know, statement to make. They just want you to be there. When people are grieving, they need company sometimes. And and part of a role of being a pastor is just showing up um, and then saying a prayer that might mean something to someone. And, and, and honestly... I was taught, I took a class in, in undergrad called Introduction to Ministry, which is basically like a class on like how to be a minister, like the nuts and bolts of like communion and baptism, and, and which, which is a really important class. I'm so glad I took it because it's helped me out a bunch in my life. And I remember our professor, Dr. Hartley, goes, listen, you're going to be in a lot of situations that are weird, that are awkward, that you don't know what to say or what to do. And I'm going to tell you, your best piece of advice is this, just stand there. Just stand <laughs> yeah. there. Yeah. You know, you cannot get in trouble for standing there ever. Yeah. You know, just just being present is the best thing you can be. And if they ask you to pray, open your little prayer book and find your appropriate prayer and get after it. And then say, you know, what can I? What else can I do for you? And if they say nothing right now, then you leave. Like that's that's your job. And that I've I follow that advice dozens of times in my adult life, and it's never steered me wrong. Yeah, it's so it's so counterintuitive because there, I can't tell you how many times 
in the hospital where I'd just be like standing there saying nothing, trying to have a caring look, perhaps in, 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 in my spirit praying or, you know, whatever silently, but everybody's just thankful for your presence. So it's a good, it's a good pastoral care reminder there, Ryan. Appreciate it. Thank you. Um, let's jump into your book. The reason I had you on the pod, the book is 20 myths about religion and politics in America. And Ryan, apparently you've become somewhat of a, a, a famous, I don't know, social media person from sharing these graphs that we talked about. I just saw like a YouTube, uh, I didn't watch the whole thing, but someone like breaking down one of your graphs, I think on YouTube, doing a YouTube video on like some of your graphs, um, but so in the book, you have 20 myths and we're not going to talk about all 20 myths, but some of these myths are some that kind of caught me so kind of like by surprise that I, I wanted to talk through some of these. Uh, so first kind of like tell the story about the book and talk through maybe like what got you into breaking down some of these common myths. So the book came from the fact that when I wrote The Nuns, which is the first book that came out in 2021, it had, it did better than I think anyone really anticipated sold more copies than they expected in a very short period of time, hit the sales goal. And I think my publisher came to me and was basically like, what else you got? You got any ideas there? You got any book project you can turn around pretty quick? Because you know it's it's always good to keep books coming out. Um, if you yeah. look at some of the most prolific authors, the most successful authors are the most prolific authors, right? right. The ones who write a book or two every single year mm-hmm. are the ones that have the biggest following because it's like you continue to feed the beast, right? More content, more content, more content. So I was like, well, what, what kind of book can I put together quickly, you know, cause you have to have a book done. And my cycle right now is I usually sign a contract in March and have the book done by September. And wow. then it comes out the following spring. I mean, mm-hmm. that's like the rotation, how it works. So the question is what, what ideas do I have that I can kind of put together in a book in four or five months? Hmm. Um, and I like the idea of 20 myths because I like the idea of bite-sized chapters, you know, mm-hmm. that are easily re- readable in 10, 15 minutes yeah. um, that are freestanding, you know, so they're independent of the other. You don't feel like you have to read the, the book in sequence. You can read it out of order and it makes just as much sense as in order. Um, you can pick it up and put it down and not lose anything, not miss your place. Um, and a lot of these myths, you know, I think books oftentimes belabor the point too much because they have to keep adding word count and page count. Right, right. And I think like 2,500 words gets you a long way in this world. So like that's what the the book basically is 2,500 words and three, four graphs on each of these myths. Mm-hmm. And these are basically things I've been collecting over the last, oh, two or three years. I'll see people on social media make the same mistake over and over again, say the same thing that I know is like empirically false. And I just wanted a way to like sort of codify and like make that concrete, like saying you're wrong and here's why. I can point <laughs> you to this chapter in my book and say so. But I also, when I was picking the myths, one thing I was really, really cognizant of is you know, my job is to be a truth teller to both sides of the political spectrum and the religious spectrum. So the nuns and the evangelicals and the Democrats and the Republicans mm-hmm. um, need to see that the, the 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 empirical world doesn't always reinforce their worldview. Sometimes it actually contradicts their worldview. Yeah. So I try to pick myths that sort of uh, the left would like some of them and the right would like some of them. The left would dislike some of them and the right would, would dislike some of them. And so, you know, and then half the myths are religion and politics and then half the myths are just straight religion. So I try to, you know, hit as many bases as I could. I hopefully there's something in there for everyone, you know, that, that kind of applies to them or their personal situation. And that's really where the the whole idea of the book came from is just putting these ideas on paper so they're more concrete and letting people know that the world they think they live in is not actually the world they live in. Yeah, I appreciate you kind of talking about the philosophy of the book because I, I definitely found that to be true where I could kind of like just read a chapter, be done with it. And not feel like uh, put it down, come back to it, and not feel like I'm oh what what's the what's the overarching theme here? Um, so 
I think the first one that really stood out to me, and again, probably based on the time which I was reading it, was the the myth on abortion. So I'm just going to read a couple couple of quotes or summations from from points in your book here. Uh, one is weekly churchgoers are more likely to support abortion access without restriction than making it always illegal, which again seems just like whoa, shocking. Uh, and then the alliance between evangelical and pro-life groups is not as strong as people think. Mm-hmm. And to me, these two things seem both shocking and unbelievable. And maybe it's just because of so much of the, the media narratives. Uh, talk more about, because again, I, I, I still have a hard time believing these things. Yeah, so abortion is this issue that uh, the media, the average American thinks like is the animating force of religious voters in this country. Right. Conservative religious voters in this country. And that kind of traces its history back to like the the post-Roe period, especially like the early 1980s, when the Catholic Church has always been anti-abortion. Like that's always been their position, even going back hundreds of years. Evangelicals were sort of very mushy on abortion. Even into like this the 80s, they were still mushy on abortion. If you look back, like the Southern Baptist Convention had these rebel resolutions they passed in the 70s and 80s about uh, abortion. They're all kind of like, meh, you know, we don't love the idea, but woman, doctor, privacy, you know, let her make her own decision. Mm-hmm. So, you know, all that to say that abortion was never really this huge issue in American evangelical politics for a long, long time. And even today, I think it's not as important as central as people make it out to be because the share of Americans who want to make abortion completely illegal is only about 20% of the public. Like it's a very, very small slice of America, and yet they seem like they play a, a huge outsized role in the discourse. Right. Um, and I think social media has made that worse, by the way, because extreme voices are interesting people. Yeah. Interesting people get the likes, the retweets, right. the shares, the all the traffic. Right. The moderate voice is like, man, that doesn't get me excited or angry or <laughs> right. you know upset. It's just like, okay, you know, you have a practical view of this whole thing. And so I think what's happened is we conflate with loud voices with all voices mm-hmm. or most voices. Yeah. And the reality is an abortion, you know, if you look at like abortion in the case of rape, 75% of Christians are fa- in favor of abortion, illegal access to abortion in the case of rape, even among Southern Baptists, which are like the really conservative, you know, denomination in America, two thirds of them are in favor of abortion in the case of rape. Hmm. So, you know, it's, it, Americans take a very sort of pragmatic view of race, of, of, of abortion. And that is that it is, not a good thing, not a mm-hmm. moral good, right? We should not be celebrating abortion. Um, and there should be some stigma around. I think the average American thinks there should be, you should not be like announcing, I had an abortion and be proud of that fact. Mm-hmm. But they also think that a woman should have the right to get one, um, hmm. especially in certain circumstances. I think I think if you put on the ballot in every state a bill that basically allowed abortion on demand for the first trimester and then after that for fetal defect, uh, rape, incest, and life of the mother, it would probably pass in... 42 to 45 states right now Hmm. um, because that's where most Americans are on the issue of abortion. And I think the problem is, though, it's like, well, that doesn't fit the narrative. The narrative is that evangelicals are Republicans because of abortion. And if you look at the data, they're evangelicals Republicans because they're in lockstep with the Republican Party on abortion, but also immigration, Mm -hmm. uh, same-sex marriage. Uh, and also, econ- there's actually a book, a chapter in the book about economic issues. People think right. that the, the evangelicals don't vote for the Republicans because of economic issues. Yes, they do. They are in lockstep on uh, on economic issues as well. The evangelicals with the GOP. So, you know, it, it, abortion is a piece of a much larger puzzle 
Mm-hmm. And we sort of forget the other parts of the puzzle because abortion is so you know visually compelling in some weird way and, and, and morally compelling in some weird way that yeah. it sort of like dominates the conversation. And the point I make in the book is I think a lot of evangelicals hide behind abortion as the reason they vote for Republicans because if you go to a dinner party and someone asks, well, who'd you vote for, which you shouldn't ask, by the way, but who'd you <laughs> vote for in 2020? And you say, I voted for Trump. And they say, well, why? They say, well, I'm an evangelical and I believe that you know abortion is murder, life begins at conception and on and mm-hmm. on and on. That ends that conversation. Yeah. Right, you got to go. Okay, I'm not going to argue with you about scripture and theology and sanctity of life. Let's right. talk about something else. But if you said I voted for Trump because he wants less immigration into this country, that's not going to stop the conversation. That's going to start a whole new conversation mm-hmm. um, about xenophobia and racism and all the things that go along with that. And if you look at the data, I think immigration is just as important as abortion to hmm. evangelicals now, and the data backs that up. By the way. Um, and I think ab- immigration – I think the, the evangelicals would rather vote for a candidate who's anti-immigrant and, and has a moderate view of abortion as opposed to being the opposite, right? Who being pro-immigrant, let's say, but anti-abortion. Because hmm. I think immigration is really the number one issue that animates a lot of conservative evangelical Protestants today. Wow. That's that's telling. Um, I want to ask a follow-up question if I can on the abortion topic. Uh, based on the data, I'm curious your response on this. I'm seeing a lot of – Again, this is kind of on Twitter and, and social media. A lot of kind of like, um, I don't know. You, I think if you use the word perhaps celebration, kind of like kind of that uh, messaging around abortion, like abortion as healthcare, kind of like we should. Based on your your in, in, I can't say the word analysis of the data, do you think that's a losing message in America? Uh, I think that the. <laughs> so what's really funny is um, the Republicans caught the car on abortion. You know, like the car, the dog caught the car, and now it's like, well, what do you, what do you, what do you do? Right. You know, we we've been we've been beating the drum of we want to end row, we want to end row, we want to end abortion in this country, and and they did. They they caught the car largely because uh, an old woman died of cancer, and and certain things broke a certain kind of way in the Supreme Court. You know, that's mm-hmm. and Donald Trump. Donald, can you imagine twenty years ago going to someone go, you know, why we're going to have the end of Roe versus Wade in this country? Because Donald Trump won the presidency <laughs> and appointed three conservative justices. Right. Everybody go, okay. First off, you're high. Like, what are yeah. you talking about? Uh, but that just shows you how weird democracy is. What's really interesting is a lot of Republicans who used to be hardline on abortion, you know, completely anti-abortion now, mm-hmm. have softened their position. We're seeing candidates on the Republican side actually scrub from their websites of the section on abortion or or softening the language on abortion because they realize when the dog catches the car, there's a lot of backlash. Mm-hmm. And, and like we just talked about, a very small portion of Americans want abortion to be illegal in this country like it is now in many states in the South um, that are conservative. And so when the dog catches the car, the Republicans go, wait a minute, we got to back away from this position. And, and even yesterday, Lindsey Graham proposed a bill that would make a 15-week abortion ban federally. And you know what most Republicans said about that? No comment. Yeah. Because it tells you they're not in that position. They're not – they don't believe that stuff, and they don't believe their constituents are there either. So I think a winning – and not to – like Bill Clinton was right on abortion from a, from a messaging standpoint, which safe, legal, and rare – Mm-hmm. That's where the the median American is on mm-hmm. the issue of abortion is safe, legal, and rare. Meaning they don't want people to come out and have willy nilly five, six, seven abortions, but they do know that women are going to get abortions anyway, and it should be safe and it should be legal. Um, I think that's where most Americans fall on abortion, and actually, I think where most evangelicals would kind of go, eh, "I don't love it," but that's mm-hmm. kind of where we are, because the problem is we have to compromise on this position. Right, yeah. every issue in democracy is a compromise between now. Obviously, would 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 far left people like that position? Safe, legal, and rare? No, they don't want. They say we should not stigmatize abortion. We should not say rare. It shouldn't be rare. 
That's not where most Americans are on abortion either. They want it to be rare, but they also want it to be safe and legal, right? Mm. So there needs to be I, – I think I actually – like I said, I think there should be a, a proposal on every state ballot of this you know, 15, uh, 12 to 15 weeks abortion on demand, and then after that only in extreme cases. That makes no one happy, but it actually is the compromise position for the left and the right, and I think what it would help – it would actually help the Republicans, by the way, because it would settle this. And they can move on to something else because yeah. right now they're losing on the abortion issue. Right, right. All right, that's that's good conversation. I want to move on to some more perhaps religious, but obviously they have uh, political overtones. But I think uh, you have a chapter in Born Again Experiences, which is really, again, really surprising for me. Uh, you write something, adults rarely report Born Again Experiences, and such decisions don't usually produce a meaningful effect on behavior, which again, I grew up similar to you. Uh, not Southern Baptist, but Independent Baptist, in kind of broadly speaking, the subculture of evangelicalism. Uh, and that's shocking to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so with so much emphasis in certain faith traditions, especially evangelicalism, on public professions of faith, like what do we make of this statistic? Yeah, so evangelicals love to tell like radical conversion stories. You know, if you go to any evangelical church for any period of time, you're going to have testimony time, mm-hmm. you know, where someone comes up and, you know, has that like light bulb moment where they were, you know, struggling with, they're going to divorce their spouse or they're addicted to drugs or, you know, they're an alcoholic. It's always something very dramatic, right? right. Like this inflection point and they found Jesus and they got back with their spouse. Jesus they, set they them free. Them. Yep. Jesus set them free. They were blind. Now they see and life's all better now on the other side. Like they literally just went from zero to a hundred, like overnight. If you look at the data, that does not happen. Like, Hmm. it is so incredibly rare. First off, we have to say that adult conversion is also incredibly rare. Right, Um, right. Most people lock their religion in by their early to mid-20s, and they're not changing from that point forward. You know, so the idea of, like, a 45-year-old married man of two, you know, becoming, like, some sort of evangelical Christian— it happens, but it is very rare. The problem is our brain latches on to like these extreme examples of something, these sensationalized examples of something, not the average outcome. And the average outcome is a very few people convert, and when they convert, they don't change much politically or religiously after their conversion. So mm-hmm. the thought is if I become an evangelical, I'm going to become more Republican. I'm going, be, I'm going to attend church more often. That just kind of flows from what we think happens with a conversion because to be evangelical is to be Republican, especially in 20, 2022. What you see is that actually – People are almost as likely to attend less after they say they're born again versus more. <laughs> um, and wow. the median outcome, by the way, is no change at all. Um, no change politically, wow. no change religiously. And and what's really interesting is, and I was I actually published this in a peer reviewed journal article, and one of the one of the reviewers made a really interesting point. He, he said, I want you to look at the partisanship of people before they converted, and then what their partisanship was after they converted. And a huge chunk of people who became born again were strong Republicans before they uh, became born again, which mm-hmm. means they could not change. They could not go further right. to the right because there's nothing else out there on the scale. Seven's as high as it goes. And so that's probably what you're seeing is they're they're aligning their religious identity with their political identity. And they're saying they're born again or evangelical now because they think that's what strong Republicans do is yeah. to say they're born again or evangelical. So again, it's not this big like sort of like epiphany moment, cathartic moment where people change. It's just them sort of gradually sliding into – I, th- I always say it's more like a dimmer switch – than like a a traditional off-on switch that people sort of slide towards evangelicalism or slide away from it. And I think that's what you see in the data. There's not a lot of dramatic change there. So as a pastor, uh, what do you advise? Like 
you know, you also you also work in church. Like broadly speaking, like is this something churches need to stop? I know, so, especially among Baptists in a conservative group, it's so much like Great Commission, Great Commission. Like, are they better suited to like focus on, you know, young people, children, faith formation, disciple? You know, mm-hmm. does that make sense? I think that I think what the the goal of a pastor is is to help the person in the audience their dimmer switch become a little brighter. Hmm. You know, as opposed to like having these like big switches of zero to a hundred. Mm-hmm. How about fifty-five to sixty-two? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, how about a nice, reasonable nudge towards? And I think, you know, talking about those dramatic moments that people have, where like I was going to get divorced or I was an alcoholic or whatever. If if those people are sitting in your church before that, you should be nudging them away from alcoholism and nudging right. them away from relational conflict. So they don't have that sort of inflection moment in their life where they need to have a dramatic conversion experience. I actually think that's a kind of a symptom of a disease, which is that people wait too long for things. Right. They wait till it's too late to, to try to make a change. There's this great uh, Hunter S. Thompson quote, which is funny because he's not a religious guy, but he said this. He goes, pray unto God, but row away from the rocks. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like we we pastors, I think job is to help people give them the encouragement to row away from the rocks in their mm-hmm. life. And so that w- that way they don't hit the rocks and they have to find a way to patch the boat up and get back sailing again. You, We need to nudge them each and every week to, to row away from their worst impulses when mm-hmm. it comes to their marriage or their children or their job or their addiction to drugs or alcohol mm-hmm. to tell them, like, listen, you need to see this and give them a moment of contemplation and clarity where they can see where they are and what they're about. That's actually what church is, I think, now, is we give people an hour to think about themselves, which in this world is crazy because we don't Hmm. have many hours to think about themselves. And so in that hour to think about themselves, they can contemplate where they are, but they can also row away from the rocks, right, or be encouraged to row away from the rocks. And so I think that, to me, is more important because what's funny about that is if you're good at your job, you're not going to have those dramatic conversion stories. Right. Because they're not going to exist because those people hmm. are not going to hit the rocks and crash their boat and have this catastrophic failure. I think that's what pastors are supposed to do is avoid the need for some sort of like wholesale change in people's lives. Instead, it's just click, 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 slowly moving people away from the things that are making their life worse, more painful, you know, make them depressed and addicted and lonely and isolated. We got to find a way to turn those people away from that as it's happening, not when it's already too late. It's so interesting because, um, that's kind of what is celebrated, obviously, is those big changes in people's lives. Um, but also, like, just this, um, even in, even in like more liberal church spaces, there's still kind of like this expectation of big dramatic transformations. Like, oh, I'm I'm a you know I'm a big anti-racist person, which again I wholeheartedly support. But um, I think it's a more reasonable expectation of helping people grow. One um, percent is is a is a metric that people have talked to me like, hey, if we can just get one percent this year, that's a big growth. Um, so I, I like that like that idea of encouraging people to grow a little bit, little bit. There's this book by Dan Abrams called Ten Percent Happier, which is not a Christian book. It's about meditation, mm-hmm. but he makes this great point. He goes, listen, if you, imagine how much better our lives would be, our collective lives, right? If we were all ten percent happier. Yeah, you know, just ten percent is just a, a world of difference, and I think that's sort of a reasonable goal for pastors is to make people two percent happier, five percent mm. happier. You know, if we do that, I think we've made. Think about all the the grief that we've saved, all the right. marriages and family relationships that we've saved, all the addiction that we've kind of steered away from. If we can do that, like that, to me is a tremendous amount of success. But it's also impossible to measure things that don't happen. 
You know, the mm-hmm. divorces that don't happen, the addictions right, that don't right. occur. Like, yeah. but that's the problem is, and that's why being a pastor is the hardest job in the world because there's no outputs. You right. know, there's no widgets to say, I made this many graphs, or we made this much money last year or last quarter. Pastors don't get to, I mean, they can say we had this many baptisms, this much membership and offering and that kind of stuff. But really, at the end of the day, a lot of things that you do are things that don't happen. You help people right. steer away from the rocks, and that's not measurable. And that makes life hard for pastors because they can't see it. They can't, it's not tangible. They can't measure success. Mm-hmm. And so you have to find ways to get your 10% happy from some other source, which is not always apparent. Yeah. Good stuff here. Uh, let's let's move on here. Uh, I, I want to hear. Pro- I probably need to check out the book, The Nuns, but I want to hear some some thoughts on the qu- so called nuns in America. Uh, you write that there's little evidence um, that the, that the growing number of nuns is a result of people leaving the faith. Um, which again, there's been such a a movement, uh, whether we call it evangelicalism, um, this kind of hand wringing about mainline Protestant. A real decline, um, and this rising nuns and people kind of wrestling with what what do we do with that? Um, you know, are we making too much of the so called evangelicals of the de churched? Like, I, I imagine you and I would both agree, like churches need to get their blape together and stop mm-hmm. doing things to turn people away. But also, like, like it, it seems like if I'm reading you right, like it's a really small statistical number. And more and more, just people not growing up in the faith. Is that fair? Yeah. Exvangelicals are probably 3% of America, which is, hmm. I mean, not nothing, right? That represents 10 right. millions of people. Let's not discount that or right. downplay that. But also, let's not overplay that either. Again, it's the extreme voices on social media are the mm-hmm. ones that get the most attention. And oftentimes, exvangelicals when they leave the church, are very critical about the evangelical church. Right. And other people retweet negativity. Like, we know that yeah. for a fact. Like, negativity is spread more widely on social media than positivity is. Yeah. And so they're basically leading, leaning into a message that gets them. And I think we're all, per, there's perverse incentives online. You know, I think yeah. we, you, we would all be stupid to say, I don't care if I get retweeted. Yes, you do at a basal <laughs> level. Like you're lying to yourself. People are like, I never read my own press. I'm like, you're so, you're either yeah. like mentally ill or crazy, you know, to say like, or lying. There's no right. other option. Like yeah. you don't read your press. You are so full of it. You're telling me you never have read a review of a thing you did. Of course you do. And that's the thing that happens with people online. They read the reviews, which is you see it immediately with the likes and the retweets and the mm-hmm. comments and all that. You see that stuff. And suddenly we all – you know, we want to do more of what goes farther. You mm-hmm. know, that's the human inclination. And I think with evangelicals, a lot of them started out by dipping their toe in evangelicalism and then saw all this sort of like just, just mass that come up behind them. And they're like, well, let's keep – let's make this our thing. And part of me says – Part of me says to evangelicals, if you broke up with a partner five years ago and you still tweet about them every single day, mm-hmm. would you think that's okay? Hmm. Would you be happy with that? Or would you think that person needs to get over it and move on with their lives? Yeah. I think you would probably say they need to start thinking about something else. Yeah. And I'm sorry the evangelical church hurt you. I'm not evangelical, by the way. I'm sorry any church hurts you. I'm sorry mm-hmm. any institution hurts you. I don't. I, I wish no hurt upon anyone at all, but you cannot be defined your entire life by hurt that was caused to you by an institution or a group of people. We've got to move forward. You know, that's the only way. And we're it, being defined by what we're against sounds like a miserable way to go through life. And so... I think evangelicals matter. I think that they are still 
human beings loved by God and brothers and sisters in Christ. Mm-hmm. And yet I think they represent a very small portion of the American electorate that social media has allowed to elevate themselves to a certain level that is beyond their actual size and presence in the general population. Um, and I think the bigger thing about evangelicals is I think we do need to listen to some of the critiques they make of the evangelical church because I think mm-hmm. there's like a, a seed, a kernel of truth right. in a lot of them. I think they overblow for effect. They over-dramatize for effect. Yeah. But we need to not miss sight of people leave church for a bunch of reasons. Now, why is American Christianity on the decline? It's not because of people leaving church. It's people by, because people are being grown in, in religious with no religious tradition. They're being raised mm-hmm. in households that are nuns from the time they're born now when that was almost unheard of. 30 or 40 years ago. Yeah. You know, so here's the statistic amongst um, the silent generation, which are people who are like dying rapidly right now. Right. Um, only 18% of them are nuns. Wow. Uh, amongst Generation Z, it's 45% of them are nuns and 37% wow. are Protestants or Catholics. So it doesn't take a whole lot of math problem to figure out what's happening every day in America is that old people who are very religious are dying. Mm-hmm. And every day, people are turning 18 years old and coming of age who are much less religious. That's It's just called generational replacement. Old people die, replaced by young people, and young people look differently than old people do, racially, but also when it comes to religion. So that's what's—it's not like a wholesale people just like getting up on one a Sunday and like, I'm not going to church today. That's right. not really happening. It's people never really grabbing onto church to begin with, and that's how change happens, and it happens gradually over a long period of time, not all in one fell swoop. Let me ask you this. I've often thought about, um, I don't know if prom's too strong a word, but you know, the, the common thought process in church or church planting is like, it's like, hey, there's a hundred percent mission field. Like everyone's everyone's a potential convert, right? Whereas like in the business world, if a company is looking to start like a store or a branch in a community, they're gonna look at like demographics, they're gonna look at like market share, they're gonna think about, hey, our potential customer base is like this realistically. Like, do you think churches need to be realistic and be like, hey, like there's not the market share here for a, a church? I think that yeah. So that religious economy theory is really fascinating to me. It's this this idea that was really um, publicized by a guy named Rodney Stark, who actually just died a couple of weeks ago. He was one of the most um, probably hmm. the most controversial and most well read sociologists for religion. And he was at Baylor when he died, but he was at the University of Washington before that. And he basically says that religion is an economy like any other economy, like shoes or cell phones mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. you know houses or whatever else. So. There's a limited amount of market share, right? So every year, how many people need a new phone? Mm-hmm. Not not most of us, some right. of us, but not most of us, right? And who manages to survive in a, in a cell phone marketplace? It's people who have the best product, who innovate the most rapidly and have a good price point. Yeah. And so you can kind of translate that into the world of religion, right? Which is what, mm-hmm. what religious traditions grow and which ones die. And for Starkey, he says the ones that, that grew in America, especially in the 1800s, were the ones who were the most innovative and really weren't comfortable. So like the Methodists and the Baptists, they mm-hmm. would give pastors, potential pastors, like 75 bucks a horse and go, go figure it out, dude. Like mm-hmm. go over there and start a church. Go go make sense of a church over there. And if you don't start a church, you don't eat. You know, like you don't mm-hmm. get paid. We're not going to pay you any more money. And that led to a lot of young Methodist and Baptist pastors like really getting out there and setting it on fire, right? Like really preaching a strong gospel and being interesting and innovative and reaching out to people. Well, you know, Stark would say, look at the Episcopalians or the Congregationalists. Mm-hmm. They had you know huge 
uh, amount of training. You had to have a, a seminary degree to be in one of those churches. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had well-established churches that were not on the hill country. They were beautiful stone buildings. They had pew taxes. Forgot People forget this. There were pew taxes in America 100 years ago. Yeah. To get like a prime pew in Evanston, <laughs> Illinois, it was like 1500 bucks a year to sit like in the middle uh, of the middle aisle. So, you know, those churches got basically fat and happy. And the mm-hmm. pastors didn't feel like they had to innovate because they already had this steady, nice stream of income coming in from their congregation. They didn't have to really try to win more market share. And the Baptists were like, wait, we're coming for you. Mm-hmm. You know, we're here to innovate. We're here to bring new people in. And what's happened over time is the main line has basically been eaten up by these entrepreneurial right. Baptists and, and non-denominational evangelicals and people like that because those are the real innovators in the economy is the ones who are doing the new stuff, not the old stuff. And so I think that's what we're seeing with religious economy theory, Right is the idea that American religion is the, – the market for it has gotten a lot smaller. Mm-hmm. All right, let's take a quick break. All right, we're back with Dr. Ryan Burge. Uh, Ryan, before we jump uh, – before we wrap things up here, I want to ask a couple of follow-up questions if I can. Um, well, you're talking about the religious economy theory, which you're going to have to send me some uh, some points on that to read afterwards because I'm very intrigued. Um but you know, I was really just struck by your your point about like the the kind of innovation thing and the settling thing because certainly that's a struggle that I'm seeing again and again in the mainline world. I mean, I think I, I've seen the, the statistic that like churches that have a bigger endowment tend to have lower levels of of offering giving, just as a simple data point to mark. Uh, but you know, I've seen like like in Oklahoma and gosh, like they're coming to Colorado now. Like Life Church is just they've just taken over. And, you know, I've been told anecdotally, like they just, they did bring in a ton of former mainliners. And part of me is like, as much as I kind of like am sad for my mainline colleagues, I'm also like, Hey, like this is, we, we need to innovate here, folks. Um, like, what do you think about, like, what's your advice for pastors or church leaders who are like, Oh man, like we keep losing, keep losing people to evangelical churches. Um, what do you do with that? Well, first and foremost, let's 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 be clear that that there's no there should not be any animosity between the evangelical and the mainline. I mean, they're all playing for the same team, as far as I can tell, right? So, mm-hmm. um, I don't think that I think people leaving our church for another church is probably not the worst thing in the world. I think mm-hmm. that's something that we should kind of go, okay, well, I mean, that's that it is what it is. Mm-hmm. So we're playing for the same team. First off, uh, secondly, we have to realize the mainline is in a death spiral that's almost impossible to sort of pull out of. Hmm. And that is, if you go to the average mainline church, average mainline Protestant now is like in their lower 60s. Right. So if I'm a, I'm a young person, a young couple, got kids, I walk into a church where it's all grandparents, I'm right. going to be like, whoa, that's probably not the place for me. And so in some weird way, I think that mainline churches are, by their very nature right now, really hard to come back from, like to grow back to where they used to be. It almost yeah. would be more easier to start a new thing. Right. right? Take some of that money these right. churches have and say, let's start a new service a new idea mm-hmm. that is not tied to these older folks. Not that older folks are bad, but I think we're all human beings, and we want to be around people who are similar to us demographically, right. right? age, gender, race, all those things. And I think a lot of these mainline churches are sitting on, like you mentioned, huge endowments. We're talking millions and millions of dollars. The the Episcopal Church is the one that I always point to because they just have all this data that's really easy to find, mm-hmm. um, which is to their detriment in my case because now <laughs> yeah. I can make a, a, you know, a point about them. Uh, on an average Sunday, about half a million Episcopalians go to church every Sunday. I mean, uh, there's 12 times as many Southern Baptists in the pews there are Episcopalians. I mm. mean, it's, it's crazy how few Episcopalians there are. 
Um, and yet, in 2018, the Wall Street Trust of the Episcopal Church had interest income on their investments of $300 million. Wow. Um, you know, so they're sitting on literally, not an exaggeration, they're sitting on billions of dollars of assets, wow. real estate assets, mainly real estate assets. Right. They also have pension funds and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you got to find a way to spend that money in a way that makes sense because when you got 100,000 people and $3 billion bucks in the bank, what are you going to do with that? It's probably too late at that point, right? We're talking about rowing away from the rocks. Right. Row away from the rocks now, not when your boat's literally slamming up against them in the year, you know, five or 10 or 15 years. So I think those churches should really think about planting. Yeah. You know, that's become like an evangelical thing right. is to plant new churches. Yep. Why is that not a mainline thing to plant new churches? I think there's lots of Americans who want to be religious, want to be Christian, mm-hmm. believe in Jesus, but just can't get down with that evangelical flavor of theology and political mm-hmm. ideology and all the stuff that goes along with that. But they want to be part of a community. And that's what the mainline used to provide. Most Americans, mm-hmm. 50% of Americans in the 1950s were mainline Protestants, and now it's 10%. Mm-hmm. I think there's room to grow. If you want to talk about total addressable market, I think there's a huge total addressable market for people who want to be Christians, but not that kind, you know, hmm. not the evangelical kind. And I think the mainline really needs to invest in serious church planting efforts and find young pastors who are interesting, innovative, and say, here's a million bucks. Yeah, Go figure something out. And, and let, just keep funding them. And I think you're going to find that a lot of them are going to do a good job because they're young, they're interesting, they're hungry. They're not financially hungry. Mm-hmm. They're hungry to do a good job right. and show and extol the virtues of Christianity, a different kind of Christianity to people, and they just haven't had the opportunity because the finances just aren't in their favor. Yeah. Let me ask uh, two quick follow-up questions if I can on this mainline topic before we move on to closing questions. Um one, you write in the book that political polarization has hit mainline Protestants the hardest, making them feel politically homeless. Um, if I'm reading you correctly, it sounds like Colorado uh, was kind of like they would call like a purplish state. Uh, now we've almost turned blue, but you know, for for five ten years, it was kind of like a purplish state. Uh, if I read the book right, you seem to suggest this kind of like both and thing was kind of a good thing for mainline congregations as as perhaps a societal example. Like, do you think – am I reading you right that A, that's a good thing, and B, like is that something that we should try to be kind of like promoting? I think that the mainline provides such an incredible service to the American population that I think we forget how important it is to have churches – in the middle hmm. of the political spectrum. Um, I think that people don't fully recognize that there used to be a robust liberal Christian community in America mm-hmm. and a robust conservative community. Now it's only one thing. It's all conservative Christians. Right. The mainline used to be bo- – actually, they still are both. You're seeing a little bit of educational polarization with the mainline where the college educated are becoming more liberal right. Right. while the less are becoming more conservative. It used to be, I mean, over the last 40 years, the most e- evenly balanced churches in America were mainline Protestant churches. I mean, they were like 50-50 in mm-hmm. a lot of cases. And now it's kind of tilting based on what the educational demographics look like. That is actually really, really good from a social science perspective, not a pastoral perspective. Mm-hmm. I actually think it makes life harder from a pastoral right. perspective. But it makes life easier from a social science perspective because those, what we call, they're called bridge building. Mm-hmm. You know, these ideas like you need to create social connection with other people. And how do you do that and who do you do that with is really, really important. And if you want to make bridges, the best people to make bridges to from a social science perspective are people who are different than you, racially, Hmm. economically, Mm -hmm. educationally. And churches used to be, and actually still are, by the way, 
a place where you're more likely to meet a person from a different economic class than you are yeah. compared to your school or your neighborhood or sports clubs or whatever it is. Church is a number one for making connections across the SES divide. And I think when we lo- we're losing the main line, which we are, we're losing the main line rapidly now, we're losing those bridge building opportunities. And now all we're getting is one note on both sides, right? Whether right. it be very, very, so we're seeing religious polarization which is we're going to have, in the future, we're going to have a lot of religious people who are very devout, very conservative, politically and theologically. And on the other side, we're going to have nuns who are the opposite of that, and there's going to be no one in the middle. Right. And I think that's bad for America because the more we polarize, the more we tribalize, and tribalize can find ways to dehumanize people on the other side yeah. and see the worst yeah. version of them, not the best. I think we need more churches where there are people who are different sitting side by side on Sunday morning, realizing that just because you vote for someone I don't like doesn't mean you're a racist, sexist, xenophobe, mm-hmm. doesn't mean you're a hippie, liberal, bleeding heart. It just means you think about the world a little bit different than me, but I think you're a good person. I like you. I like your family. I like you know what you're about. It's just we vote differently. We don't see that anymore. We, we yeah. demonize the other side because we don't know anybody from the other side, which is yeah. really tragic. Yeah. I, I, I just saw a while back, again, a pastor who I respect, but tweeted something like how how could you dare lead a church that was bipartisan uh now it's it's kind of like well, i don't know if that's i would say how can you dare lead a church that's so monoculture mm-hmm. you know what i mean that's so that's so unified behind one political voice mm-hmm. I, I mean maybe call me old school but if you think that jesus is a democrat or a republican i got news for you mm-hmm. you know the, the gospel is not partisan that republicans need jesus just like democrats do and by preaching a hyper-partisan gospel. You know, Michael Jordan was asked once why he's not more political back when he was playing basketball. Right. And he said, because Republicans buy sneakers too. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? The gospel's for everyone, not just for certain people who vote for a certain candidate or party. That's that's silly. Hmm. Uh, I want to ask one more question if I can. You used the word a while back about uh, playing. What did you say about playing well, uh, playing for the other team? I can't remember. Uh, there is this kind of like, there's this kind of uh, thinking in conservative circles, especially in mainline circles that like, we're not playing for the same team. Like mm-hmm. uh, mainline churches are preaching a different gospel. Um, a conservative might say a, a mainliner would say like, we don't want someone to go to a church that's not affirming or uh, kind of oppressive in their theology. Like, I mean, I'll, I'll be frank. Like I listen to a lot of evangelical uh, voices and podcasts and leaders. Um, I, I would firmly uh, identify someone like very comfortable on the left side of things. Like, do you think – I mean, I come from from an approach where, I, again, I grew up very, very conservative where I was kind of taught like everyone on the left was just evil and I can't listen to anything. So I want to stay away from that kind of – personally, I want to stay away from that kind of thinking. Like, A, a am I wrong? B, do you think we need to kind of like tone it down a little bit and look for wisdom from different perspectives? Oh, I, I think that – and evangelicals won't like me when I say this, but I think one of the reasons the main line has declined so much is because of evangelicalism. Because to be honest, the last 50 years, the evangelicals have told the main line they're not real Christians. Right. And that sucks. Like, that's a crappy thing to say. Hmm. Um, because what it says is, is I'd rather you have either you're 100% with me mm-hmm. or you're 100% against me. Mm-hmm. And I think that is such a toxic way to go. Like, evangelicals have this like inherent desire to purify right. Their, right. their group. You know, and you're seeing that in the Southern Baptist Convention right now where, you know, they're losing membership. And a big part of the membership is now saying the reason we're losing members is because we've become too liberal. Mm-hmm. I don't think the average person looks at the Southern Baptist Convention and goes, yeah, the problem with you guys <laughs> is you're a bunch of hippies. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I think that that the problem is that evangelicals kind of want to always try to find people to exclude from the tent mm-hmm. and push more and more people out. 
And I'm a big believer in a faith that builds a bigger table, not taller walls. Hmm. And so for me, I I always tell people, if you affirm the Apostles' Creed, then we play for the same team. Mm-hmm. I don't care if you're Orthodox, you're Catholic, you're, you're Evangelical, or you're Mainline— that is the baseline for what it means to be a Christian to me mm-hmm. in 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 the in the world. And if you affirm that, I don't care what you believe about same sex marriage or women pastors or transgender or abortion or whatever else or transubstantiation mm-hmm. or infant baptism. I don't care because we play for the same team, and that which we hold in common is much more important than that which we hold different. And unfortunately, social media has made us emphasize our differences. Yeah. And, and, and forget our commonalities, and there are legion of commonalities between a lot of evangelicals and a lot of mainline. It's just these these evangelicals. Mainliners will always say to evangelicals, yeah, we're, we're, one, we're all Christians. Right. It doesn't go the other way all the time. Evangelicals want to try to make the tent smaller. Right. They'd rather have churches, instead of having churches of 500 people where maybe 300 are lukewarm and 200 are hardcore, they'd rather have a church of 200 hardcore people and no lukewarm people. Right. And I think that's, that's bad. I think it's objectively bad from a social science perspective, from a pastoral perspective. I think it's a toxic way to look at the world because it's trying to create black and white binaries mm-hmm. in a world where we're not black and white. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just think that is a that's a caustic way of going through life. And it's actually made the evangelical church more purified, right? Which might be good for them, but is worse for everyone else. And maybe they don't care about that, but I do care about care about the the, the big picture, not the small picture. And I think evangelicals, on balance, have probably done more harm than good hmm. over the last forty years. Well, I, I really wish I could continue the conversation, but for sake of time, uh, let, let's um, the, the book is Twenty Myths About Religion and Politics in America. Highly recommend it, Ryan. I got like five closing questions for you here. You can take real quick, uh, yep. but encourage folks to check out the book Twenty Myths About Religion and Politics in America. So, Ryan, if you're Pope for a day, what do you want to do? What does that day look like? If I'm Pope for a day, um, I think the first thing I do is allow women to have more leadership role in the Catholic Church. Okay. That's what the Catholic lady want too, by the way. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the data, like a vast majority of Catholic lady are like, I'm fine with a woman preaching. <laughs> you know, maybe not going as far as serving communion, because I think for them that's a you know, that's obviously a special thing with mm-hmm. their idea of transubstantiation and things like that. But find ways to allow women to have more leadership um possibilities would be a very good step forward. And also just recognize and realize the fact that the society is changing on things like on race and gender and sexuality, mm-hmm. and the church needs to find ways to not be so hard line on those things without making the conservatives mad. So I would not want to be Pope for a day. I think if we think <laughs> the Southern Baptist Convention has problems, imagine when your church is like 1.5 billion people instead of 13 million people, and those problems just get amplified to an insane degree. Yeah. Um, a theologian or historical Christian figure you want to meet or bring back to life? Oh, does it have to be a Christian figure? You can say whatever you want. Uh, I'll just be. I'm. I'll, I'll say this first and foremost. That I think Anthony Bourdain is one of the most important people that have lived in my lifetime, hmm. um, and I think he's affected more people um, than than almost anyone that's lived in the last twenty or thirty years. I'm a big Anthony Bourdain fan. If you if you're not, please go watch. Um, no reservations or parts unknown, mm-hmm. which is a show he did for CNN, mm-hmm. and you will learn so much about the world. Um, by by he was a man who was genuinely curious hmm. about the world around him, mm-hmm. and I think that's something we can all learn a lot about. He didn't try to impose his will upon people hmm. or change their minds. He just wanted to hear their stories, mm-hmm. and he had a uh, he had a tattoo on him when he died that said, "I am certain of nothing." Wow. And I think that to me is like the most important thing I can be as a social scientist, which means I'm always willing to change my mind about mm-hmm. things that I believe to be true, but also as a Christian. 
I'm certain of nothing. I believe these things, and I'm certain of nothing. I'm certain. I want to believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the power of forgiveness and reconciliation. I want to believe in all those things, but I'm cer- I'm not certain of those things. And embracing uncertainty is is something I think we as human beings, but also we as Christians, need to really embrace a whole lot more in our lives. Plus the fact he was just cool as can be, you know, and yeah. he was just so countercultural, which I think is amazing, and it's something we don't we don't get a lot of anymore. Yeah. Um. What do you think history will remember from our current time and place? Oh, it's going to be Trump. I mean, it's just nonstop Trump and the Trumpification of America and the magnification of America, mm-hmm. if that's a word. Yeah. Um. We're, I'm always joked like our grandkids are going to look back at us, and go, "You guys elected Donald Trump, huh? That's that's weird." <laughs> I'm like, mm-hmm, it was super weird. Because like every two weeks there'd be like a major scandal that would happen that at some point we kind of got we got so tired of the scandals that we don't even think about how important they are. We think about it. We had tens of thousands of people storm the Capitol building trying to overturn the outcome of a free and fair election. Right. And then half America said that didn't happen. Right. You know what I mean? Like they totally try to try to downplay it. We're like living in the upside down right now. And what's really been jarring for me is like to go back to where we started being a kid of the nineties, growing up in an evangelical church where right. you heard that like objective truth right. is all that matters. Right. And now you see people see things on TV and go, That didn't happen. Gosh, that screws you up psychologically. Cause it's like the people you trusted to teach you the truth of the gospel are now looking at objective facts and going, I don't believe those. Yeah. I don't know how to square those two things in my mind. I think I'm. I have. I think I'm going to struggle my entire life with how to deal with the contradictions I see between what they were mm-hmm. and what those people are now. Yeah, Franklin Graham comes to mind for me as someone uh, in that role. Um, what are your hopes for the future of Christianity? Um, my hope is that it. Um, actually, I think secularization is going to be an interesting process because a lot of Christians are opposed to each other. We just talked about like mainline and evangelicals and Catholics sort of like think you're all not good enough. I'm the mm-hmm. best, whatever. But I think when in, in time of increasing secularization, it's like they secularism becomes the enemy, and then you join hands with people who are on the oh, opposite side of secularization. Yeah, yeah. So like you're going to see these strange bedfellows, which is like Latter Day Saints and evangelicals and Muslims and Catholics coming together and going, yeah, we all agree that there is divine, there is you know this idea of God, and they don't. So we're on one team. <clears throat> so I think that's a really interesting thing about the future of America is, will it create these strange bedfellows mm-hmm. who have been enemies for literally hundreds of years yeah. are now going to link arms because they realize they'd rather, they're stronger together as a remnant right. than they are individually. And I think we're already starting to see that in some ways that the Catholic Protestant divide in America is, is narrowed significantly right. in my lifetime. There used to be so much anti-Catholic sentiment amongst evangelicals, mm-hmm. and you don't hear a ton of that anymore because they're realizing that at least they're a lot closer to us than those people out there, and right. we should join hands with those people. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for this conversation. Share with our listeners how they can connect with you and find more about you. Yeah. So um, at Ryan Burge on Twitter is really the center of my my social world. Everything I kind of do gets posted there. So um, you can follow me. And I also post graphs almost every day, probably seven or 10 a day, not a day, a week. Uh, graphs I make, things just to kind of start the conversation about religion. Um, RyanBurge.net is my website. Um, you can find me on Amazon. Just Google Ryan Burge on Amazon. You'll find my books. Uh, the Nuns came out in 2021. Uh, 20 Miss came out in 2022. And in 2023, I've got a couple different books coming out. I have a second edition of of The Nuns, mm-hmm. uh, Revised and Expanded, coming out in May of 2023. I have a book called The Great Dechurching that I wrote with Michael Graham and Jim Davis, which is we used we got a ton of new data on why people leave church and what the church can learn about that, how to bring them back. 
Um, and then I have a textbook coming out about religion and politics, uh, the ninth edition of Religion and Politics in America. I'm taking over with a co-author on shepherding that textbook uh, in the future. So lots of stuff coming out from me. Well, that's been awesome. Really appreciate your time, your patience with our technical glitches, and uh, uh, always leave people with a word of peace and so may God's peace be with you. Peace be with you as well. Thanks for joining us on the Future Christian Podcast. To learn more about Lauren or the podcast, visit future-christian.com. One more thing before you go, do us a favor and subscribe to the podcast. And if you're feeling especially generous, leave a review. It really helps us get the word out to more people about the podcast. The Future Christian Podcast is a production of Torn Curtain Arts and Resonate Media. Our episodes were mixed by Danny Burton, and the production support is provided by Paul Romaglevitt. Thanks, and go in peace. Peace.